Checking up on someone, checking up on somebody's credentials can be really, really important thing to do. Um, <clears throat> folk at the door posing as meter readers or builders or gardeners who could do this or that. A number of folks have been taken in over the years. And now the internet has given even more opportunities for fraud. False emails are frequent. Just click on this link and you're in big soapy bubble. And there's other ploys to get you to give away finance. Or, or someone poses on the internet as another person, maybe on a dating site, and with intent to meet up and maybe kidnap or rape or so on. We need to check. You can't just take everything at face value. And not only should we be checking up on somebody's ID or credentials, it can be on occasions that ours need to be checked. Um, last weekend, I was trying to sort out a, an issue with reference to a credit card. We're, we're not hugely in debt, don't worry. And I was trying to sort out an issue, and, and so I had to give my name and address. And then, and then the lady on the phone said, what's the second digit of the security code? <laughs> well, I, we set this up more than 30 years ago. Come on. So I racking my brains and um, had a stab and uh, got it right. But obviously, obviously I sounded a bit too unsure, and she thought maybe it was a lucky guess. So she then said to me, can you give me another bit of memorable information? I had a stab at trying my mother's maiden name, and that worked. Had to phone back the next day. It was a different person on the phone, and this time it was, what was the first school that you ever went to? But I'm really glad that they do that. It's a bit of a nuisance, I suppose, at the time, but, but actually you're glad that they do that. I'm grateful that when discussing details about my credit card, the bank want to make sure that I am who I claim to be. It's important. Now, in the New Testament times, there was no internet and no credit cards, but there were still a lot of times when checking credentials was very important. There was still a lot of falsehood around. So John urges uh, the folks he's writing to in verse 1 of the passage that Margaret read, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are lots of folks out there, says John, spreading falsehood. They claim to be the Messiah or the new Messiah, and there was plenty of them before the time of Jesus as well. And just don't believe everything they tell you. Some would come and say they're reincarnations of Jesus and so on. Not so. Test them. And that's still the case today. I, I watched a clip a couple of years ago um, of a church leader um, somewhere on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean um, who was saying that because he was an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ, he had the power to stop right there and then the advance of COVID in the USA. And so he prayed, and he did it, and he declared it gone. The really sad thing is that there'll be people today turning up to hear that guy. That's what's really sad. He's obviously a fraud. 
He's obviously a false prophet. It goes on and we get taken in. And sometimes it's hard to spot the false teaching or the false teacher. Quite often that's because the fraud is something that we want to hear. Somebody comes to the door and says they can clean your gutters or they can resurface your driveway or they can cut back the bushes and the trees and they can do it at a price that just sounds so much better than anyone else. It's tempting, isn't it? Why not? Well, if we haven't checked our credentials, sometimes people have found out why not. And it can be tempting too in the religious sphere. In a similar way, it can be tempting to, false, to fall for false teaching. False teaching, for example, that says, go on and sin as much as you like. God forgives. And God just shows how loving and forgiving he is. So give him all the more to forgive you for. How could a God of love possibly not admit anyone into the kingdom of heaven? Sounds very appealing. Someone comes along with a novel interpretation of Scripture that gives you permission to do something that you'd thought the Bible had forbidden. Someone even shows some spectacular sign or miracle, or another person dresses up the teaching of the Bible in such a way that suits your already foreign political leanings, and so you think, great. There's a lot of falsehood around. John says, verse 1, don't take everything at face value, but test the spirits. Test them to see if their message truly is from God. Aye, but how? How are we to do that? What if the message is from a clever-sounding preacher who you know has studied more theology than you have? How are you to tell if he's proclaiming a message from God? Perhaps it's a very persuasive-sounding messenger who you know has been around church circles much longer than you have. Won't she or he be speaking from God? Or you might think, who are you to test them, to check up on them, to be sifting out whether or not what they're saying is true? But that is exactly what John commands in verse 1. So how? Well, notice firstly what he doesn't say. He doesn't say there's no messengers, there's no words to be given from God. He doesn't say there's nothing more for anyone to speak from the Lord. Nor does he say anything about how the message is delivered. It's not if they can show some state of ecstasy that they must be genuine. It's not that there's got some convincing mannerisms that they'll show the messages from the Lord. Nor is it some formula that the speaker uses, thus says the Lord. Nor is it the way that they dress. Nor the moving impact that they might make through music in the service. It's not that they've got a few degrees or some letters after their name. And it is not that she or he must be the minister, or the minister, so it must be right. I think I can honestly claim that I have never said that to any of you. I'm the minister, so I'm right. I don't think I have. 
It might be true sometimes, but... <laughs> you know, on the law of averages. <laughs> but, I, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that. And I don't say that. Test the Spirit, says John. Verse 1 of chapter 4. You can't believe everything you hear. So how? How is that testing to be done? Rather than any of these things, it's the content of the message that John draws attention to, verses 2 and 3. In particular, he says, it's what the message says about Jesus that reveals whether it's true or false. You can recognize the messages from the Lord if it is faithful to Jesus, if it is faithful in showing that Jesus is both from God and also fully human. Now, it's likely that John puts it that way, I think, because that was what was under attack by the false prophets in his time. Yeah, Jesus looked as though he was fully human, but come on, he's God, so he can't really be properly human. So he didn't really die on the cross. He just sort of went into a deep sleep. It wasn't real. That stuff was going on then, and it still goes on. It's a denial of Jesus and Jesus' ordinariness. And the thing is, we must em emphasize Jesus' ordinariness while at the same time emphasizing just he's different, he's unique, he's the Son of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, will, will, will err on that side. They'll go to that passage in Colossians 1 and say Jesus is a creature, not, not the Creator. But John begins his gospel, not his letter. The same author begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made and created through him, he says, and then goes on to say, this Word has come in the flesh and is Jesus. So we must hold on to both of these things at the extremes, that Jesus is God and Jesus is one of us. And that matters. It matters that he's one of us, because if he was not one with God, then he would be telling lies. And it would also mean that the salvation that he'd done is not something that God has done, not something that God can freely offer because he didn't do it. But Jesus was from God. And it's only as Jesus is fully God and fully human that he can be the reconciler, bringing together God and sinful humanity. It's only as he is fully God and fully human that he's able to be the high priest that the letter to the Hebrews so, says so many great things about, bringing us, his brothers and sisters, into the presence of the Heavenly Father. Where Jesus not like us, not one of us, then his resurrection could not be the first fruits of the, of the harvest, of the first of resurrections to come, when all of his people are going to be raised at the last day. Were he not one like us, he could not have been tempted, and therefore not overcome temptation were he not one of, with us, and so on. You see, these false prophets, as John called them in verse 1, were not tinkering at the edges of the faith. They weren't, they weren't um, just being some ethereal discussions out there. They were disputing the actual gospel itself, that Jesus is fully from God and fully one of us. 
So then, there is the key test. Does a teaching honor Jesus or take away honor from Him? If someone then says, for example, well, so-and-so will be all right because they're a good person, then salvation depends not on Jesus, but on their being a good person. It diminishes Jesus. If someone says there's no point in praying about something because God will not bother, then that takes away from Jesus, the one who carries us into the very presence of God. What a friend we have in Jesus. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And then in verses 4 to 6, John goes on to say that because we have such a Savior, we have all that we need for our salvation. Jesus is greater than Satan, greater than all the forces of evil that piled up against him, and his resurrection is testimony to that. And since Jesus has overcome, he will make sure, verse 4, that we will overcome. And if he were not one of us, then how could we know that that overcoming would ever reach us? We'd ever stoop to the position that we're in. But it has. Jesus in his humanity was risen from the dead. And so if we are deemed not good enough for the kingdom of God, then it's not our failure because we don't save ourselves. It is Jesus who would be the failure. John refers to the Holy Spirit, verse 6, as the Spirit of truth which is what Jesus said in John's gospel about the Spirit, that he would take what is true about Jesus and make it known to Jesus' followers. So, for example, in the gospels, and when Jesus was with his disciples one day, and after asking them who the people thought that Jesus was, he turned the question around and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus' response was one of delight. But then he said that the discovery, that confession that Peter made, was not the sort of thing that could be deduced by simply human criteria or argument, but was a revelation from the Spirit of God. So, here, verses 5 and 6 in 1 John 4, there's the world's arguments, and then there's the Spirit's ministry. Now, it doesn't mean we're not to think things out. We must. You cannot check out credentials without thinking things out. But we're not to check credentials in the sense of, where did you study? When were you ordained? But what are you revealing to us about Jesus? We need to discern, to soundly judge, based on what God gives us. We need to judge truth from error. We must because there's a lot of false prophets. There's a lot of dodgy credentials. Just because, for example, a hymn has found its way into a hymn book doesn't mean that what it says will necessarily be true. There's a lot of error in hymn books. A line such as, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there, is a denial of the resurrection of the body something that Jesus clearly taught, and something that the enfleshed Jesus is very much committed to. A few years ago, we had a few days holiday in Rome, and um, <clears throat> when we got out the underground up the steps at, um, 
at Vatican City, um, as was the case quite often in Rome, and I thought this was great, there was quite often guides standing at the top of the steps ready to help you where you want to go. And this guy spoke to us and um, <clears throat> thought we would be wanting to go and, and see inside the Vatican, and was, it was this way. Um, and I said, no, it's okay, we're just going to take a look at St. Peter's Square. I don't want to see the Vatican. He said, why not? He said, I'm curious, tell me why not. The Vatican's big. The Vatican was extortionate to build. The Vatican's all beautifully gilded and artistic and everything else. And I said to him, so there's all that. And there's Jesus of Nazareth. I don't see the connection between the two. And it wasn't being funny. It's genuinely it. I, I don't get it. I genuinely don't understand how we can talk about the enfleshment of Jesus, Jesus, a servant come amongst us, stooping in the way that he stooped, and then have all that palaver that they had yesterday at the General Assembly, turns one's stomach. It has nothing to do with Jesus. That's the problem. It's got a lot to do with the state. It's got a lot to do with society. It's got a lot to do with what people in their snobbery think of privilege and status and everything else. It's got nothing to do with Jesus. False credentials, even in the General Assembly. That was in case you thought I was just going to go with the Catholics. I'm not. I'm serious. It's when we just get stuck in this business that we get carried up in, in what the world is doing and the world's styles and the world's, the world's ideas and don't bring it back to Jesus himself. It goes on all the time. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas go to a place called Berea, and there they share the gospel message. And we are told, verse 11 in that chapter, that the Bereans checked out. We're told in verse 11 of Acts 17, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. How I would love we had more Bereans in the church. Just because officials say so, or just because your granny told you, or just because it's the pattern for this or that, that's not good enough. Examine the scriptures. In particular, say, what does this say about Jesus? Because there is a lot of false teaching out there. There is a lot of nonsense spoken. I'm happy that a bank asks me difficult questions to check my credentials. Because it matters to me. It would be serious in my eyes if someone else could get access to my card details and use it for their own ends. I would not be best pleased. How much more serious is the issue of eternal life 
the issue of fellowship with God, the issue for sinners to have a savior. That's much more serious. And John says in verses 14 to 16, which is why I'd ask Margaret to continue the reading beyond these first few verses. John says in verses 14 to 16 that that's exactly what's at stake. For if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the, God, the love that God has for us. It's that Jesus, verse 14, is indeed the Savior of the world. And we have seen and testify that, he says, because the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son has come in our flesh. It's serious. It's very serious. There's nothing, actually, I think, any more serious than eternity. This is, this is just the warm-up much more to come. But it's not automatic, it's not guaranteed, it's not <clears throat> just there. It's for those for whom Christ the Savior, God, the eternal God, the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, made flesh in order to be that servant who came amongst us. So you need to check. You need to check not just that uh, somebody's speaking that message about Christ that's true, but also you need to check, what have I done with it? And what have I done about it? Let us pray. <clears throat>